If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to the show. Glad you're along. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Scott will be back next week. He is off this week. Not only in the last few days was the falcon, the peregrine falcon, chosen as our city's official bird, but now it seems that the falcon who is using the ledge at the Sheraton Hotel, where this has been a traditional place for a number of years now, the spotters there have said, hey, an egg has been laid. We are, and maybe more than one, we are in business. The falcon circle of life is once again taking shape. I want to bring in Barry Combs, who's the founding co-chair of Bird Friendly Hamilton Burlington, who joins us now. Barry, how are you today? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Oh, very happy to have you. And this, again, if you are a fan of the Falcon, uh, these are these are heady times in Hamilton. Uh, they certainly are. I think uh, we were pleased to see the results of our city bird poll. I have to say, Scott, though, that it's not an official city bird yet. It's a people's choice at this point in time. Okay. Okay. So it still has to go through the... The, the process. I, I will be very surprised if our city councillors take a hard line against the Falcon <laughs> and decide they want to choose. Uh, yes, no, we want the ostrich to be the Hamilton bird, and we're going to, no, I mean, that's not going to happen. But well, before we get to the egg and these kind of things that we're talking about, um, this was a vote. Let me name the the birds that were up for consideration for Hamilton, the bald eagle, the Carolina wren, the chimney swift, the double-crested cormorant, the killdeer, the northern cardinal, the northern mockingbird, the peregrine falcon, the red-tailed hawk, and the turkey vulture. All of those said, was there really any doubt that when it came right down to it that the peregrine falcon was going to be the Hamilton bird? Well, I wasn't on our subcommittee that monitored the actual voting totals. But I am, I've been told that it was a little bit of a runaway for the Peregrine Falcon. Because it's, it's with what's happened at the Sheraton over the years. I mean, that bird, not particular, but that breed, I mean, it has got a ton of attention and it's become something that is sort of synonymous with this city. Uh, it has, and they're magnificent birds. They've adapted extremely well to the uh, urban high-rises because naturally they're cliff dwellers. Which fits perfectly then. Absolutely. They've, they've found that nest, I think, uh, back in the early 90s, I believe it is. And uh, they identified that nest, the pair at the time, and it's been in continuous use since. Would it be reasonable to think, now, they've done, uh, the people who are behind that and... Um, uh, they've done an, an amazing job at getting a camera up there and being able to monitor it, but it would be reasonable to think that there's probably tons of other nests around the downtown and around the city, correct? It's not the only one? Uh, there are two other nests in the area. There's one out at uh, in Salt Fleet around 10th Line and uh, Green Mountain Road. There's a, you know, there's a big quarry there, and there's a peregrine yeah. falcon nest there. And another perhaps better known one is at the Burlington uh, Lift Bridge. So it's the nest is probably actually just on the Burlington side of the canal, but uh, there's been a pair there, uh, not as well known a pair, I believe, as our downtown birds, but they've been there for quite a while too. But there have to be more nests than that, right? I mean, or, or do we have a very, very small peregrine falcon population in this city, just well known? It's, it's a, I guess it's a fairly small population, but I believe in the wild, they tend to uh, have fairly large territories. 
And so to have the nests well spaced out, I think, reflects on the size of the territories that they prefer and also on the availability of appropriate nest sites. I don't think we would ever see three or four pairs uh, downtown, for instance. Really? Okay. Okay. They're that territorial and they need that much space. I think they do. Do we, is there something, um, this may be a weird question, but is there something naturally, um, unusually appealing about the peregrine falcon that would have intrigued bird watchers in this city? Or has it been the fact that we've had this nest in a place that can be monitored over the years so that people have grown an affinity for this? Is it, is it a, is it a fascination of convenience because of what's happened or is there something else going on? I think it's probably a combination of the the access to the the lifestyle of the peregrine falcons that we've had here at the Sheraton Hotel over the couple, over three decades now, but also the appeal of the bird itself. Peregrine falcons are remarkably beautiful birds. They're powerful. They're the fastest uh, living creature on the face of the earth, they can, when they, they can stoop up to, and I'm sorry, I think it's 180 kilometers an hour or something like that, when they're going at their fastest after prey. So they're just an exceptionally beautiful bird, and I think a great, uh, a great city bird for Hamilton. The, the story that we're hearing is that there's at least one egg, but we don't really know. It, do you know if that would be common? Is it usually one at a time, or do they usually lay five or six, or do we know... Or is there a common? I don't think it's uncommon for uh, some eggs to not be fertile, but uh, I believe that an average brood might be two or three chicks in the long run. Okay, and it's 33 days I'm reading here. Now, I, again, I, I'm, I'm going by what I'm reading because, I, unfortunately, my, my peregrine falcon basic knowledge is not, is not as good as yours, but I understand it's about a month that it takes, and we don't know because of the angle and where the camera is and everything else. We don't really know when this was laid, so it's sort of we have a rough estimate of when this might happen. Does that... Do you expect that in that time, as we get closer and closer, there will be more and more interest that that I, I mean, that more and more people, even who aren't necessarily diehard bird watchers, become interested in this? I think so, and I think the uh, live cam is is a very popular feature, allowing just anybody really to go online and watch the whole process. And by the way, uh, with the growing interest, I I might point out that the Hamilton Falcon Watch is always looking for volunteers, in particular for once the chicks are fledging and they're flying around downtown and they're very, uh, they're very susceptible to uh, the potential of getting hit by a car or bumping into a building uh, in the wrong way. So volunteers are always uh, needed. I, that's the thing I'm very surprised at, that, that living downtown with all those glass windows and everything else, that, that we don't have more unfortunate stories. So they, they must either, there must be some defense they have to understand where walls or windows are, or they're lucky. I, I don't know, but I'm just surprised that we, that they're able to live as well as they are in that area. Yeah, the peregrine falcons seem to adapt very well to the uh, urban environment and urban structures. 
other than that, though, uh, most birds don't. Most birds can't read or understand glass. And that's why we, uh, we're advocates of having bird-friendly measures uh, built into the building code and also lights-out programs to keep the lights out at night, mm. particularly during migration. Because most birds uh, uh, will perish with window strikes. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Ontario government is saying that now six stretches of Ontario Highway will have a permanent speed limit of 110 kilometers an hour rather than 100 kilometers an hour. The closest to us, the one that many people around here will use most often in all likelihood, the QEW from Hamilton to St. Catharines. Now, there's been a pilot project there already, but that is now going to stick around, we are told. Brian J. Patterson is the president of the Ontario Safety League. He joins us now. Brian, how are you today? Good afternoon, Scott. I agree. It's a good-looking day out there at my window. Let us hope so. Let us hope so. We are due for a good-looking day. Um, what is your thought? Good idea to make the highway speeds 110 or bad idea? Um, uh, I think it's a good idea, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, we believe it, uh, that you know when engineering leads decisions, safety follows. And this program was engineered uh, right from the beginning. Uh, I think they even had a PhD data guy reviewing uh, the data. They followed it with a scientific approach for the last two years and we haven't seen uh, the problems that we may have thought were going to happen and uh, at the end of the day uh, they've remained similar where other 400 series highways when the left uh, covid uh, vehicles we've seen a lot more people uh, driving recklessly on those stretches so uh, it proved itself to be safe even if you were skeptical at the beginning so uh, I, I say if they want to expand it, they'll have to follow engineering, not uh, not uh, not an election idea. See, Brian, I am sure that a whole bunch of people did the spit take there or the double take because a guy who was the president of the Ontario Safety League, I'm sure a ton of people listening were like, Scott, that's a stupid question. Of course, Brian is going to say he wants it to be 100 because that's what the narrative always is, not necessarily from you, but the narrative always is slower must be better i'm 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 not shocked but i'm impressed i guess that you're looking at this as scientific or as engineering or as data driven rather than again what a lot of people would have just assumed yeah no i've uh, I've, I've had to argue this point with uh, any number of lugans on the radio who think they <laughs> don't have an engineering background so at the outset, we said to the ministry, the two things we want. We want the data to be collected and be transparent. They agreed to that. And we wanted anybody going 150 to have the same penalty of uh, extreme driving as if they were uh, on a 100 series highway. And they put that into the legislation as well. So at the end of the day, it was good legislation. A lot of stakeholders had a role to play in it. And I think uh, uh, I may have been startled by the engineering but they did a lot of engineering at the beginning, so they had a baseline. So this is really, as you say, this is science-led decision, not election-led decision. So I don't see it uh, suddenly uh, uh, morphing all over every 400 series highway in Ontario. And I think we could probably, if we had been paying attention, probably all of us could have anticipated this would have been where the data had led us because... Um, 
in the places that do have higher speed limits on the highways, and I mean, the number one place that everyone thinks of automatically is the Autobahn, um, there is not evidence typically, and I, I mean, I didn't even realize this. I had to look this up today. There's not evidence that those highways lead to carnage and way more deaths and way more wreckage. In fact, it's the opposite. There's a lot of those places, the Autobahn, the, the, the death rate is a lot lower than on Ontario's 400 highways. Well, I can tell you as a guy who actually drove the Autobahn, uh, I will tell you one of the reasons they have less crashes is they have very tight regulatory driving. So no passing on the right, no uh, uh, using uh, uh, lanes inappropriately, uh, maintaining distance, etc. So uh, I think people here think, oh, yeah, I can go 190 in Germany. So I should be able to go 190 in Toronto or Hamilton. And the answer is, no, you can't. Uh, the, uh, the Autobahn, the regulated driving is uh, superb. I, I mean, uh, uh, and in, in many European cities, you're not allowed to drive as badly as we have some people driving in this problem. Hmm. That does see, you know what, you, you've just touched on something else that I think is really uh, an interesting point here. And that is we point to speed always, it seems, as the number one automatic default thing that we say it's a problem. We don't pay so much attention to some of those other things that you've talked about that maybe if we were, if we had the police and look, no one likes getting a ticket, but if the police were more vigilant or instructed to be more vigilant on some of those things you've talked about, the bad lane changes, the passing, the follow too closely, maybe that's the big issue we should be going after here. Oh, I think it is. And, uh, and when, uh, when officers pull people over for that, uh, they should have to go back and do some sort of remedial education. Because frankly, half the people who got a license in Ontario never took any driver training. So uh, they're, they're not defined. I, I literally had a woman say to me the other day, oh, uh, I didn't know you had to have insurance. I learned that on your course. <laughs> like, really? Uh, you know, I think we've done a good job uh, of uh, impaired driving messaging, uh, seatbelt messaging, distracted driving messaging uh, all together. And, and you don't have to tell uh, Tom Carrick at the OPP that his officer should be looking at those problems because they're doing it every day. They're issuing tickets every day. Hamilton's got a traffic unit that's doing a brilliant job. And so at the end of the day, when people tell me about their whiny ticket that they shouldn't have got or a clear violation of the Highway Traffic Act, I guess I'm, I'm the guy with very little sympathy then. I only have a few seconds here, but if 110 is better than 100, should we then investigate whether 120 is better than 110? Yeah, when I get an engineer that tells me that's a good idea, I'll call you back, Scott. So I would say <laughs> no. And I and the people that are going 110, they're losing 10% of their fuel economy for the additional 10 kilometers they're going. So in today's gas market, maybe they should be going 100 instead of even 110. How much do you know about your investments? If, if you have some, if you have some RSPs or some retirement money set aside and it's in some sort of investment how much do you know about it if you have rsps as i say do you know what stocks what companies you've invested in probably not you probably just know i've got rsps you don't look deeply into it do you even know the terms that are used in the investment world so you can talk intelligently with your advisor or read reports and again you're like okay well of course i know the terms well well, hang with me for one second here because it turns out that many of us apparently don't. A survey was done in which Canadians were asked about investment terms. 
And it turns out many, many, many of them did not do so well. And in fact, that's only the half of it. I want to bring in Alexander Morsink, who's the co-founder and managing director of Equivesto. Uh, Alexander, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Scott. So Alexander, what is blue chip debt? Can you define that for me? Well, blue chip debt uh, is not a real thing. We, we made it up for the survey to see um, whether Canadians would understand that it wasn't a real investment term. It's a play on, of course, a blue chip stock, which would be a, a, a higher quality rated stock that's consistently paying dividends. But blue chip debt uh, doesn't exist. But uh, according to 28.8% of Canadians, it's the safest debt investment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, what is NVP? So NVP, again, um, it's not a real term. It's a play on uh, NPV, which stands for net present value. But 91.7% uh, percent of Canadians thought that NP, uh, NVP was a real term and meant non-verified person. And PX ratio, same thing. I mean, I wonder with this, because, I mean, you, you did this test and people, and look, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Had you done this on me, I probably would have failed as well. I'm going to be honest. I mean, and I wonder if it's because we don't know if we're not sure or if we're too embarrassed to say that we don't really know. So we just nod our head and say, oh, sure, that must be a thing because someone who's credible is telling me it is. So I, it, it's got to be something. Right. Well, and, you know, Part of the challenge is the availability of financial education. We recently in Ontario, uh, only a couple of years ago, finally introduced financial literacy in high schools, which I very much applaud. But, you know, the average Canadian is not going to have access to that kind of information. It was basically, did your parents work in the finance industry? Great. Then you get to learn from them. Otherwise, okay, um, you know, you're not going to learn about that in school. And we're all expecting to come out here and be able to make investment decisions and be, you know, adults operating, paying taxes and doing all this stuff, but no one's really teaching you. And it can feel embarrassing to, you know, go into a bank or speak to your financial advisor and ask those questions. And so what we're trying to do is create a sort of safe space where people feel comfortable asking those questions and getting the answers that they're looking for to really make sure that they understand what they're doing with their money. And look, it's not just in the financial world. Uh, you can go to your doctor and they will drop terms in their vernacular that we don't know, or police do it, or any any industry has their own language that the rest of us don't understand. The difference, I guess, here is we're supposed to, uh, presuming, I mean, most of people are putting some money away, we're supposed to be able to understand what we're doing. And we don't know, we don't all have to talk with police all the time. We don't all have to go to the doctor for certain tests. Hopefully we're all doing something to prepare for our financial future. No, exactly. And, you know, everyone is, hopefully everyone's able to, to work. And if you're not working and, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, hopefully people are in a situation where they have money that they can be thinking about what they need to, to do with it and are able to be thinking about things like saving for retirement or, or planning in advance. And having that that knowledge base, that understanding, not just about, you know, what silly terms like PX ratio mean, but really in terms of, okay, you know, I'm, I have this money coming in. How do I budget this effectively so I can achieve my financial goals? How can I make sure I have, you know, the right amount of money set aside for education or for my own retirement or a down payment on a house? 
you know, we're, we're dealing with money all the time in our daily lives. And we haven't always had access to all the information or education we needed to, to be able to handle it effectively. Are, are you confident that now that financial literacy is part of the curriculum, that even though many of the people who you would have questioned for this poll are probably a little bit older, not in school right now, didn't go through that, don't necessarily have that background. Are you confident that the kids who are coming out of school now would have done better on something like this? Or, you know, they may know the basics, but this is stuff that they still wouldn't know. I think they would know the basics, but again, the financial industry has so many terms. You could probably see a number of them and, and, throw some of these fake ones in there and say, oh, I, I guess these must be, you know, some real terms as well. I haven't reviewed, you know, the full curriculum as presented by the Ontario government. I'm sure it, it's logical and makes sense. Um, but there's always more areas of finance that we can be expanding and, and growing our knowledge. And the vast majority of Canadians have already graduated high school. So even though this is being introduced, and I think was introduced about three years ago, you know, it's not going to be benefiting you know, the vast majority of us that, uh, that aren't um, in secondary school at the moment. Alexander, does it matter though? I, I mean, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm assuming that many people who do invest have an advisor of some kind, or they have a website of some kind. They're not going out and buying their own stock. Some people do, but most don't. So as long as your advisor or your website knows what these sayings and phrases and meanings are, does it really matter that we know? Well, and that's that's a really good point. Through the you know uh, COVID nineteen pandemic and over the the past number of years, the number of Canadians that have started self directing their investments has gone up quite drastically. And you know, there's always conversations about the difference between a financial advisor with an E and a financial advisor with an O, and one of them is a salesperson and one of them is actually an advisor, and you don't know which is which. Um, there's always questions about things like that. And so I think, yes, it's great to have these pieces, these tools, you know, uh, companies out there that are providing um, managed uh, accounts. They're very effective in helping people get access to financial investments and products who don't have that, that additional knowledge or that background information. I do think taking a bit of time to grow your own financial understanding can only help you in navigating this space. So you can make sure almost check the homework, if you will, to make sure that, okay, these people that I've hired are doing the right job. They are doing the, the things that they said that they're doing. Alexander Morsink, uh, co-founder and managing director of Equivesto. Thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This whole thing about working at home has changed a lot about our work experience, but people are now heading back to the office. It is starting. And there is a lot of belief, and I think based in good logic, that when you go back to the office, if you do, things will be different at the office. The etiquette around office behavior will probably have changed. And I know I'm not the only one who believes this. Dr. Matthias Spitzmuller is Professor of Organized Behavior at Smith School of Business. I believe, Dr. Spitzmuller, that uh, that you may also believe the etiquette around office behavior will change by the time people start going back, correct? That is correct. Thanks for having me. I like how you're 
introducing this topic, uh, talking about sweatpants and t-shirts and maybe us having a shower before we're starting our work. I think it also illustrates that for many of us, this is an anxious moment when we're leaving sweatpants and t-shirts behind. And when we reconvene in uh, crowded spaces with uh, peers at work, with our supervisors, and I think organizations have to be mindful at this time. This is indeed an, an anxious moment for many. Uh, it's uh, also, I think, full with uh, fears that many people have regarding their health, regarding leaving behind some of their uh, favorite activities at home and proximity to loved ones. And it's important to be mindful of that, I believe. Oh, no, I agree. And I would encourage all, um, if you're going to change anything about what you've been doing from home, let's start with the shower. Show up for work having had a shower. There's your starting point. You want to wear a dirty t-shirt, that's fine, but make sure you've had the shower. Uh, look, there are a number of things that seem obvious. And before I get into them, let me ask you a very basic question about this, because part of the discussion of etiquette at the office is going to raise the question of, should the people who are nervous about COVID still, should they be getting over it because the other people who are there who are fine with everything now are ready to get back to normal? Or should the people who are fine with everything bend their will to the people who are still skittish? Who, who, should, who should be the ones who get the benefit of our change? Uh, I think it's an interesting way how you put this. Uh, so who is accommodating to the other side? I think exactly. whenever we have got such a, a starting point of a discussion that usually doesn't bode that well, because then you have got winners and losers and having winners and losers. I think that's what we see on the world stage. And we also see that in the small politicking behavior and organizations. I think that usually doesn't work that well. So I think it's important to come from a point of goodwill and to try to understand what are the concerns that other people are having. And if we all assume that people are reasonable beings with good intentions and care and concern for others around them, I think that's a good starting point for the discussion. That also means that people who are not comfortable returning immediately or who insist on wearing masks, they may have good reasons. Maybe they are immunocompromised. Maybe they have seen the scary side of COVID. And let's try to take that into consideration before we rush to judgment. Okay, so, and it's a very good point. I mean, someone is going to have to be the one to give give in to the other one, and whether that's winning or losing. And and look, I, I think it's a really, it's a good point. I don't know that it's a healthy thing to show up to the office ready to fight for what you want, as opposed to saying, <laughs> I'm going to be acquiescing to my, my coworkers, and I'm going to try and be polite and try and be sympathetic. So uh, for sure, Let, let's start with a few of the areas where we might see things done differently than we would have before. And I think the obvious one, uh, many places have company meetings, have staff meetings. How is that going to look different? I think we're going to see a, a gradual adjustment over time. I think we are still going to see a virtual option in many organizations for meetings with a goal to slowly move to in-person meetings. Good practices that I've seen in organizations are such that they announce changes well in advance, giving employees time to change. So what we've done, for example, at the Smith School, before the start of the semester, four to six weeks before then, we've had an announcement, expect to come back to the offices. 
when the semester started, our dean also showed presence. She was walking through the offices to show people that I am here and let's try to slowly come back. But at the same time, let's be comfortable if people are wearing masks. If you're a hugger at work, that doesn't mean that everybody else is a hugger or believes firmly in the importance of handshakes. Having open conversations around these practices and who's comfortable, who's not comfortable, I think that's a, a good starting point for, for the discussions right now. And I think, I mean, some of these things like desks, a lot of a lot of offices, you'll have a pod where you've got a bunch of desks together. Um, that's going to be an interesting one, especially if your desk mate, if the person at the next, that next desk is wearing a mask and still really wants you to wear a mask and you're really comfortable not wearing one, boy, now you've got some some situation to make sure that everyone's comfortable with because you are going to be breathing on each other, whether you like it or not. Yeah, absolutely. And you raise, I think, a very uh, a possibility that I think many of us will face. So the direct interactions with coworkers where exactly, as you say, we know that we're going to be breathing the same air. So I think it requires um, some trust, um, some understanding, communication, but you won't be able to impose exactly the type of behavior that every employee in the organization has to show that also has to be negotiated at an interpersonal level among, among peers. In those conversations, let's also be mindful that not everybody has to disclose their full medical history. If someone is <laughs> compromised, yeah. I don't think it's at um, this person's obligation to share their full medical history. I think suffice it to say that there are medical reasons for why that person may still be more comfortable to wear masks. And I think colleagues would be well advised to, to respect that. Well, we got to run in a second here, but one thing I'm going to be really interested in seeing is, I mean, a lot of offices, there are people who, you know, they, they tell jokes about whatever it is, whether it's the news of the day or whatever. And I wonder when the first one is going to come along that someone tells a COVID joke thinking, it's reasonably benign and someone else in the office maybe who's had COVID or had someone get sick with COVID is going to now take great offense to this and this becomes a huge issue. Yeah, I wonder what Chris Rock would say to your question right now in terms <laughs> yeah, of right. um, the jokes right. that have been made and reactions towards it. But I think what this episode has maybe also shown us is there are topics which are sensitive to some and anticipating those sensitivities oftentimes goes a long way before you feel the slap of the um, slap of the the fist in your face. In a, True, but in at a the same time, sense. but at the same time, I, I also don't think that people want to go back to an office and everyone is on eggshells all the time because they're terrified of anybody being upset about anything. I think that's a horrible place to work as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I've gone back to in-person teaching right now. I'm teaching the MBA students here at the school, and I'm so happy to feel the energy of a classroom again after two years. I'm so happy to see people's emotional reactions to what you're saying, to talk about socializing activities, to, to plan get-together. So absolutely, I think we have to learn to overcome some of those anxieties again, but that also takes time. Let's not expect us to do this overnight. Uh, let's give ourselves some weeks, some months to go back to what will be a new normal at work. We are. We have a lot of people in this province who appear to be quite happy about what is coming and the money that can be saved with this deal between the federal government and the provincial government. Jess Thomas is a community organizer at the Association of Early Childhood Educators of Ontario. She joins me now. Jess, thank you for the time today. Thank you so much for having me here today. What should 
um, the expectations be of this new program? I mean, uh, some people would say it's going to be a utopia. Other people are going to say, yeah, it'll be pretty good, but there's going to be some hiccups. What what should we expect of how this is going to work? So, I, you know, I think that folks are right to take celebration in this, uh, though it's also equally right to be hesitant. There is a way for this deal to go through where we could have minimal hiccups, but it's going to need significant uh, strategies for the current workforce crisis. And I think if we can address those issues like the low wages, the no paid sick days, uh, there is a potential here to build a really robust and stable childcare system within Canada. And we were talking yesterday on the show and we didn't have a ton of time, and which is why we wanted to talk about it again today. But yesterday, one of the things, and it goes to what you're just saying, I think, the, the government yesterday announced, I think the number was 86,000 new spots in Ontario are going to be created. And that sounds wonderful if you're one of those people who's been looking for reasonably priced daycare. But that, if you're going to put 86,000 kids in daycare, I don't know the number exactly, but tens of thousands of new workers we're going to have to find. Where do we find them? Absolutely right. And if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that the conditions that childcare workers were um, exposed to before the pandemic were quite difficult already. But post-pandemic, they've become impossible. And we've seen folks leave the sector in such high numbers that although we have are thinking about 86,000 new spots, we have a deficit of over 300,000 educators right now just to stabilize the sector that we have right now. So it sounds daunting and it sounds like something that might be really difficult to uh, achieve, but we are seeing graduates come out. We just aren't able to keep them. We are seeing folks who have gone in, into different fields, but would love to come back. And so if we can address the, the issues that made them leave in the first place, I think that we could possibly actually fulfill these, these particular numbers. There, and that's part of it. The other question about the, the feasibility of this, I suppose, and look, I don't want to be sounding negative about it. I just think these are legitimate questions. Where do we put all these kids? Do we have the like the tangible infrastructure buildings? Do we have the facilities to do this? Yeah, unfortunately, at this point, we do not. And this will go to show how the system that we have currently is such a patchwork of different uh, municipalities, and different types of childcare even. We have home childcare, we have uh, for-profit, non-profit, inside of schools, standalone centers. And so we've been as a sector making it work. However, if we are planning to expand at the rate that we are, are expected to, we're gonna need some, like some really high commitment to building new centers, to making sure that new daycares will be um, have access to schools and perhaps even be built into the schools that are already existing. Uh, but this is going to take also, because we have such a mishmash, a really strong commitment for this particular government to collaborate with the sector. We know where we need these places. Uh, there's a lot of research that the AECO as well as the OCBCC have done to identify areas that are in need. And so I think 
consultation will probably take us a long way on this path. And, and you know, there is, uh, and again, not to sound negative, I really don't mean to be on this, but just some, some tough questions. There are people who don't work nine to five. They're either on shifts. They may be a single person who works overnight. A nurse might have a, a single parent nurse might have a, a child or, or someone who works in a factory or whatever. There's going to have to be some of these that are not in the daylight hours that you would normally talk about that may be responsible to do this overnight. That, again, seems to be something that becomes an extra challenge to figure out who's going to look after those kids. Absolutely. And I think that it's going to take a bit of a culture change for folks to reimagine what the workday is now. I think that it is an antiquated idea that folks all work nine to five jobs and those are the only ones that need childcare. Um, I think that that's also why we've moved away from the word daycare into childcare. We are hoping to be able to provide services around the clock. And there are you know, a few that are in existence right now. There have been some that have come out of the pandemic in terms of uh, providing emergency childcare. But I will say this workforce is very flexible. When those things came up, they came out, showed up and provided services 24 hours a day for exactly who you're, you're, you're speaking of, like the, the doctors and all those and shift workers who had to provide those essential services while we were in lockdown. So I think it's possible. The thing that is not possible is for folks to sustain it with the resources that they have right now. And that's why we're seeing folks leave. It's possible, but they're going to need to be supported. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The province says it's now looking to create a plan to prepare us for the next health crisis. Now, I am surrounded by wood here, and I'm touching all of it, that the next health crisis is not in our lifetime. We've, We've done our duty, haven't we? We've been through this. We don't need another one. Some generation down the road, if they want to take a stab at one of these, knock yourself out. We, we're, we're about done. But you never know, right? You never know. And so there is talk of stockpiling PPE and hiring more nurses and a bunch of other things which would get us prepared in the event that something were to happen down the road. I want to bring in Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid, who's a health policy expert. We love having him on the show. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time today. Thanks for having me. There will be people, I guarantee you, who will say, well, it's about darn time that they came up with a plan. Uh, Two years too late, in fact. There are others who will say, look, nobody could have anticipated this. And you know what? It's great that we've learned something from this and that we're taking this opportunity to make sure that we're ready the next time this happens. Which is the more fair argument? Well, I think it's something in between. We knew the evidence was clear that a crisis, whether it's climate change caused by wildfires, droughts, um, you know, hurricane or tsunamis, depending on where you are geographically in the country, or whether it is an infectious disease pandemic like COVID-19 was bound to happen. Uh, You know, the evidence was very clear that because of different migration trends and climate change action and lack of action on climate change, we were expecting to have a, a disaster or crisis of some sort. It happened to be COVID-19 this time, but it's not to say that it couldn't have been a uh, natural disaster for that case. And so the answer to your question is, you know, the evidence was there, the political will to make sure that systems and leadership is behind strengthening our health system's capacity was not there. Um, And I think what ended up happening is that the pandemic showcased gaps that already existed. It's not like the pandemic exposed new errors. It just exposed what already was fragile in our system, one being that 
you know, we don't have the right healthcare capacity in place. We don't have the right number of beds. We also don't have enough supply uh, of PPE and other equipment that is needed to uh, for large scale action. And so those are the things that we knew were already issues and we've been documenting them for a long time. The pandemic just magnified them and brought them to the forefront of everybody's minds. Is that the biggest thing, do you think, that we've learned from this? Uh, and I mean, look, there's going to be postmortems going on for years about what happened during this. But is the biggest thing that we've learned just the the incapability of our system to handle something this of this scope? Well, I think what we learned, the biggest lesson, is that our system needs reform in different ways. I think we realize that our system is fragile and the way it's currently being operated it's not ideal for any increased stress. I mean, the good example I can give you of that is that every time we saw a rise in numbers, you almost always heard the, the narrative around that being our health system. I mean, I was one who always said that our health system is getting at the brink of collapse. You know, it, it's, it's fragile. It can barely sustain the damage that it's happening. And so we always equated the rise in numbers of COVID-19 on our healthcare system. So in virtue, if you had a strong healthcare system, then a rise in case numbers would not have had such a toll on everybody in the country. I'm going to ask people not to throw their shoe at their radio in the next moment here, but um, mm-hmm. I was reading something today. Um, Dr. Isaac Bogach, uh, infectious disease expert with the University of Health Network, says that we are in the early part of a sixth wave of COVID-19. As I say, please do not harm your radio while we say that. But Doctor, is it a, is there a chance that this plan for what we're going to have to do for the next it, that, that it's right upon us right now, or are we not talking about that? Well, I think that you know, Doctor Bogash's points are valid. That you know, there's a rise in numbers from what we can see. There's the, the I think with the reason why we're the public doesn't need to be alarmed at this point because this was expected. This you know, with the lifting of the mask mandate, there's going to be a rise in numbers. However, we have a very high vaccination rate. The majority of people are still continuing to wear their face mask, even though there's been a lift on the face mask mandate. And so I don't suspect this will have what people are fearful of, which is a lockdown measures or any of that sort. And in addition, the government has made it exceptionally clear that lockdown measures are not on the agenda at all and that they're not even considering it at this time. One of the things, um, and there's a lot of things here, like we don't have nearly enough time to talk about what a plan might look like. One of the things, though, is they want to load up on PPE, on personal protective equipment, and that sounds like a fantastic idea, but am I not correct that at the very beginning of this pandemic, now it's been two years and we've talked about an awful lot of things, that our PPE had expired? If, if we go and spend tens of millions of dollars on PPE, is there a chance that it's sitting there for long enough that it's no longer useful when we need it? There is that possibility. However, you know, the pandemic is not over, right? So even if we stockpile now on PPE, we're probably going to go through it with the majority of it by the time the pandemic is over. Whether it's COVID-19 or other infectious diseases or variants that will present themselves, we're not quite sure when we will come to a point where we no longer even bring up the name COVID-19. So as long as there are infections in our hospitals that are a result of COVID-19 infection, our staff and personnel will need PPE and therefore this supply will be used. I think what the government is looking at is better container and cargo container shipment where they can have contingency plans so that there's no shortage if need be. I think they're trying to think about more supply chain chain logistical uh, innovation and so that in case there are issues we can have them 
there are some who will argue, you know what we need to do? We need to spend a lot more money on this. And maybe that's the answer. But we've also seen studies that say Canada is one of the highest per capita spenders on healthcare, and our healthcare system doesn't necessarily reflect that. Is this is this purely a financial thing or is this a an, an, a smarts thing about directing the money better where that we already are spending or spend a little more, but make sure it's spent really smartly? Well, I think it's, you've answered the question. I think it's about smart, spending the money smartly. So I'll give you an example. The Liberal government, the federal government, has now dedicated $4.2 billion for the mental health transfer as a result of what's happening through the COVID-19 pandemic and people's anxiety and depression rates being highest in the country. And so, you know, instead of, you know, we're putting that money towards increasing mental health, but we need to be strategically thinking and being innovative in where that money goes. So, for example, can we channel those funds to digitally enable therapies? Because we know now that majority of people are actually resonating with, uh, you know, physiotherapy, sorry, psychotherapy, social uh, social worker therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy that's delivered through technological advi- uh, advances. So whether that it's an app or you meet your therapist or resume or whatever the case is, that's an example where it's not necessarily just increased funding, but funding at the right place at the right time for the right innovation. So much many, so many more things I would like to talk about, but uh, alas, the clock is not my friend right now. Uh, Dr. Amas Farad, Ahmad Faraz Khalid, uh, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it again. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Thousands and thousands of Canadians, it seems, are beginning to prepare their income tax papers to do their taxes. Back in the day, back in the middle of COVID when CERB was being sent out, they weren't claiming CERB, but people who had somehow got their information, had acquired their information, had hacked into their Canada Revenue Agency account, and according to the story here, applied for it under their name, somehow got it sent to them, um, ripped them off, ripped off the government, ripped off the taxpayers, and as it turns out, ripped off these people because when they go to do their taxes now, they're being told you have to claim or you have to pay income tax on the amount that was that you had taken in CERB because many of these people had other income. It is frustrating. It's upsetting. It's certainly going to cost some people some money, maybe, although the government is now saying, if we can establish that you, this happened to you and that you didn't really do this, you won't have to pay for it. But it's a ton of money, potentially, that has gone missing the taxpayers paid for that is now poof, into the wind. I want to bring in Jay Goldberg. He's the interim Ontario director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, thanks for the time today. Great to be with you. It sounds, and look, I, I'm just, I didn't even know this whole story. I've just been reading about it lately. It sounds like there could be, again, an awful lot of taxpayers' money that goes unaccounted for that we don't really know where it is, but it's just gone. Absolutely. You know, you hear these stories. Uh, we read in the Globe and Mail, for example, 800,000 Canadians had their accounts locked by the CRA because of what happened. And they think that 10,000 taxpayers, people hacked into their accounts, applied for CERB benefits. And, you know, if we're talking about 10,000 taxpayers potentially getting two, four, six, eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 per person through the CERB program, 
that's actually starting to amount to a heck of a lot of money. And one of the big concerns early on and throughout was that the government was, yes, trying to get the money out the door to help people, but also that the system was being set up very quickly and that there could be a lot of problems. And so this is a deeply concerning problem. We also know that many people uh, who weren't eligible for CERB uh, claimed it anyway, and retroactively the government is trying to come back and get some of that money back. But unfortunately, this is the kind of problem you confront when you try to do uh, a program so quickly, um, and and this is this is what results. But the, the bigger concern as well, it's a question of privacy. It's a question of um, you know Canadians' individual information, and we need to have confidence in the CRA uh, and the government that if they're going to have our confidential information, uh, that it's not somehow going to be hacked because that's absolutely deeply concerning. I mean, I think a lot of people are understanding of the speed with which CERB went out. Maybe there were other things that could be done. I mean, it, they there there seemed at the time that it was started that there were no protections put on it. It was just get the money out the door to people and we'll figure it out later. And and okay, I, I look, I'm fine with that concept if we needed to get money into people's hands. But my expectation, and I think a lot of people's expectation is, I get what you did. But you told us at the time, we will get the money out the door, but we will figure it out later. Now is later. What are you going to do to figure this out? I think that's the question a lot of people will be asking. Absolutely. And one of the concerns that we all have is, you know, these individual taxpayers, if they are able to get in touch with the CRA and demonstrate to the CRA that they're not actually the ones who claimed uh, this money. And obviously that's going to be somewhat difficult to do um, for some people, for sure. But the question remains, uh, you know, how much money are we going to be out as taxpayers through through this fraud, through this hacking? And, you know, the programs were extremely expensive, tens of billions of dollars spent. And as you said at the time, there was a need for some to get money into their pockets and in their hands because of what happened during the pandemic and the jobs that were lost. But ultimately, as you say, this is the time where, you know, we were promised that money would get out the door quickly, but the government would do everything they could. Uh, to make sure that the program was sound after the fact. We're now at after the fact. And in fact, we're almost two years after when this program was first created. And the government absolutely should be more prepared to deal with this than to all of a sudden get this story in the Globe and Mail. And as soon as a reporter calls the CRA, the situation was fixed for this individual. But we're looking at thousands of other individuals who could be facing the same situation. And it's two years later, and it's time for the government to get their act together. I, I, I mean, do you have expectations that this will get resolved? Because I mean, I'm looking at this thinking, if if already someone could hack into someone's thing, their file, and get the Serb sent to a different address, and that didn't raise any red flags already, what's the chances that they're going to be able to track down who the people are who was stealing the money? So, and this is the concern. This was the concern all along when the government said that, oh, we'll be able to figure out things later. Um, you know, it might have given them a pass for a few months to be able to say we're going to figure things out later. But if they're just figuring out now, two years later, uh, that these kinds of things occurred uh, and this kind of fraud occurs, it, it definitely doesn't bode well for our confidence in government. And when the programs were started roughly two years ago, as I said, you know, there's an expectation that the first few months there may be some kinks. There's got to be problems they have to fix. But we should not be looking at the situation two years later 
and seeing all this fraud just all of a sudden being discovered, it really shows that the government's just not on their toes. All right. So uh, to be fair, I mean, is this indicative of that? Is it indicative that the government was careless with our money? Or is this simply one of those cases where if people are bound and determined enough to take advantage of a crisis and to rip people off, they're going to be able to do it because, you know, we don't live in a perfect society and there's no such thing as a perfect system. Well, I mean, part of that is the potentially the case, but we're talking not about a case of one or two or three, but we're talking about 10,000 taxpayers who had their accounts hacked. Uh, This is really a question, not just of, um, it's not just a question of taxpayer money, but it's also a question of privacy. And so the CRA really has to get on their game uh, and figure out exactly what they're going to do to make sure going forward, Canadians' privacy is protected because this is a money wasting issue, but it's also a privacy and accountability issue. And so Canadians should be concerned from two different angles. You have heard, I'm quite sure, of the idea of a cooling off period before buying a gun. That's a thing they have in the States where you want to go buy it. You have to go in, you show your documents, you put down your money and they say, you know, come back in a few days and we can check on you and make sure that you're not buying it out of some emotional state that we don't want you buying a gun in. Well, The idea is now coming to Canada, except instead of firearms, we're talking about houses. In British Columbia, there is legislation moving forward that will give home buyers a cooling off period after they've agreed to purchase a property. Now, why would they do this and what would be the the thought behind this? I want to bring in Paul Taylor. He is the president of Canadian Mortgage Professionals. Uh, Canadian Mortgage Professionals gave recommendations to the BC government on this one. Paul, thank you for the time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to talk. So what would be the the thought behind this? What would be the benefit of this, that we would give people this opportunity once they've signed the document to say, all right, let me think about this for a bit? I think the government in BC is concerned that because house prices have been escalating as quickly as they have, because there's so little supply and competition is so fierce, there are a few people that potentially have over-leveraged or overbid just through frustration of having lost in the past and having a, a need for somewhere to live, and then realizing 12, 24, maybe 36 hours after they've signed the contract that they're actually not able financially to make ends meet with the bid or the commitment that they've made. Um, if you find yourself in that position, it's quite expensive to extricate yourself. Oftentimes, you will lose your full deposit. And the government's intention, I think, is just to protect people from themselves a little bit. Um, the actual mm. details of exactly how long this cooling off period is going to be are still not clear, though. Um, the announcement that was made yesterday by the BC Minister of Finance effectively let everybody know that the legislation has been changed to permit regulation to be created. But we're still waiting on a recommendation actually from BC's Financial Services Authority about how long to make it. And Right. Buy, our bu- buyer's remorse coverage, basically. You, you have an opportunity to, to give yourself sober second thought after the, the heated pitch of getting into a bidding war, probably. Exactly right. So there are some details in this, though, that are um, really worth considering. Because the idea of a cooling off period has actually been floated in the industry for a long time, especially given how house prices have been escalating so quickly. But we really do have to consider both parties in a transaction, which is what makes this complicated. Right. It's easy to see why from a purchaser's perspective, you would want a little bit of protection here. 
But if you're the individual selling the home, the bids that you're receiving now have effectively some unstated as yet period of time in which they can be rescinded. And we're not sure even if that means they can be rescinded without consequence. There may be some financial penalty. There may be a full protection. And so that that's going to have some impact on the market. Um, For sure it is. For sure. Because I'm thinking, as I was thinking about talking to you today, I was thinking, okay, if I'm the seller of a house and you know what, look, we, we know here in Hamilton, people here who are listening have been in the same situation. The numbers are not quite as crazy as they are out in BC, but they're they're pretty wild here these days. Mm-hmm. And so you get into all these bidding wars. Somebody might buy, put down the top bid on three houses in a weekend. And then if you can get out of it, say, you know what, I'll give it some thought because I've now got the control of these homes and I'll get rid of two of them after when I decide which one I really want, theoretically. That could happen two or three times, theoretically, to the seller of the home where they keep selling and then keep finding it back in their lap and have to go sell it again. That's that's a that's a weird situation to be in. Uh, I very much agree. So exactly that scenario was raised with the BC Financial Services Authority as part of the consultation that they were conducting. So I don't think that that scenario is going to be permitted. There's likely going to be required some sort of disclosure with a bid that advises the would-be seller if you do have other offers in place somewhere else or some sort of attestation that this is the only home I'm bidding on at the moment. There'll, there'll have to be some means to communicate that exactly for the seller's protection. One thing that's really good about this that I want to ask you about, because we're short on time, unfortunately, but one thing that sounds really positive about this is here in Hamilton, and I'm assuming again out in BC, it is so heated at times that there's no opportunity. If you put conditions on the purchase, you're not going to get the house. And so people are buying homes with no property assessment, no home inspection, no nothing. And you could end up with a lemon on your hands. This might give you an opportunity, would it, to have an inspection done? Uh, potentially. So, But that really does depend upon the length of time that's provided. And that's what we don't know yet. Uh, I actually think that that is one of the dangers. If the period of time is short enough, two or three days, I think everybody will understand that, that it hasn't been provided as a due diligence period or you know a time to conduct that type of an inspection. But if they make the period a week, I, I think there's a concern that the industry or consumers in general actually might just assume oh, the government's given me a week, so I don't need conditions anymore. I've got that due diligence period. But arranging inspections and arranging finance actually can take a lot longer than that sometimes depending on the period. And so it may lull consumers into a false sense of security, which is why the communication around the delivery of this mechanism when it's finalized is going to be critical. We've got very little time, but is there a chance this could actually do the opposite in one way of what you're trying? And could this possibly drive up prices? Because now I'm willing to bid a little higher because, you know, I can still get out of this. Uh, You know what? Anything is possible. Um, (laughs) It's really difficult trying to determine sort of the psyche of a marketplace. Um, the The other danger with this is if the market does turn and instead of a seller's market, if we actually become a buyer's market, if interest rates are rising, there'll be you know far fewer um, potential buyers, and and sellers might actually hold a, a few more cards. The potential buyer, because they have the ability to withdraw here as an additional negotiating tactic, and you know if it's a seven-day period, the pur- purchaser could come back on day six and say, "I know we agreed to this price, 
But I asked mm. him, I'm only going to pay you 50000 less or I'm just going to take the offer off the table. So it's right, really yeah. important to balance both the seller's and the purchaser's interest when these things are being considered. It is a fascinating idea, Paul. Unfortunately, we have to run. Paul Taylor, president of the Canadian Mortgage Professionals. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. We were talking an hour or two ago about COVID and about what happens. What happens? There's, there are experts that now say that we could be entering the sixth wave. I, I mean, I, I, I could not have told you what wave we might have been going into. I think I lost track at about wave number three. I, I stopped counting. But apparently we may be on the verge of wave number six. Now, doesn't mean it's going to be the same as one, two, three, four, and five because the virus that we are experiencing right now seems to be less potent and putting less people in ICU. Nonetheless, numbers apparently are going up. They are finding this out through wastewater testing. It's a fascinating concept, and yet it's something that is maybe not getting the attention or the respect, is that a word, that maybe it should be. I want to bring in Councillor John Paul Danka, Ward 8 Councillor from the City of Hamilton. He joins us now. Councillor, thank you for your time. No problem, Scott. So I think a lot of people, and, and look, I don't want to be boring people or patronizing people or insulting people. I think a lot of people understand the concept of the wastewater testing. But for those who don't, how, how do we find out from wastewater COVID numbers? Well, as an engineer, this is actually really fascinating to me. So when you are sick, if you have a virus such as COVID, it's present in your body. And when you go to the bathroom and then subsequently flush the toilet, the samples of that virus are present in your waste, which is collected by the city's wastewater system, makes its way down to the sewage treatment plant. And through sampling and testing of that wastewater, we can get an idea of the prevalence of that virus in the community at, at large. And we can also genetically uh, sample the virus that is present and understand what variants or specifically what viruses um, that people have and inter interpolate backwards to figure out um, how much virus is present in the community. And we can even in some circumstances, if we're testing specific facilities or specific areas, um, nar narrow that down to um, specific outbreaks or areas of concern. Uh, first of all, kudos to whoever has to do the sampling. The last thing I would want to do for a living is sample wastewater, but anyway, good for them for doing it. It's important to do that. But this is a, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating concept that it could be accurate. That's the amazing thing to me is, do, I mean, do we believe that this has a very, very high degree of accuracy to the point where we can rely on it to give us real guidance? Well, back in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, the city of Hamilton, our public uh, wastewater, our water staff, were actually some of the leaders in the province and across the country in figuring out how to sample accurately and how to make sure that we get accurate test results. And then the researchers from uh, start with the University of Ottawa, and now it's up to, I think, 16 academic research labs across the province. Um, they're able to look at test data, so uh, clinical testing and hospitalizations, and then look at the data that they are getting from wastewater, the viral load that's in their samples, and kind of interpolate how they connect together. And we actually see in a lot of cases some fairly strong correlation uh, between the wastewater testing and um, what we're seeing in, in 
clinical testing and hospitalizations. And really interestingly, um, in the data that is now published on the City Hamilton website, we see a pretty clear spike in wastewater um, tests before uh, the second wave and before the third wave. So, you know, if you're looking at that data, now we're, we're looking at it in hindsight, of course, and it's a lot easier, but you could say that the wastewater actually spikes actually predicted the second and third waves. Now, as we move into Omicron and, and the current variants, um, uh, variants of Omicron, um, it's the data is a lot more aligned, so we're not seeing uh, it being such as a predictor, but it does indicate what the prevalence of the virus is in the general community. Let me ask you this. Let us say, so, okay, we're going to believe this. We're going to trust this. We believe that this is accurate. Let us say then that the numbers begin to show, as you say, we are seeing a bit of a, a move towards numbers going up. Let's say it predicted or we started to get the sense that there was a big spike. At this point, having been through what everyone's been through for the last two years, if the city of Hamilton's health department or the city of Hamilton said, it is time to go back into some form of lockdown, at this point, do you even think you would have the power to do that? And I mean, I know you have the power as a city to do it theoretically, but do you think people would listen or are they so done with this that anything that the city would say, they would say, yeah, you go ahead and do that, but I'm not going to listen anymore. Because I wonder if we've reached the point where even official edicts would be listened to by the masses. Well, that's the challenge from a public health perspective. So we're talking about wastewater sampling for viral load as a research project. But the real question is, how do we then apply that to actual public policy? And I think when public health is... A, evaluating uh, the, the data that they're seeing. There's no question we're seeing a spike, an increase in the wastewater signal of COVID-19 across the province, not just in Hamilton. But how does that apply to public health policy? How does that impact hospitalizations? How does that impact, um, you know, just the overall mental health and economy of everything? And that's, that's the much more difficult thing, question to answer. It, 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 are we in a position where we really need to go back to, you know, mandatory mandates and masking and lockdowns and separation, what's worked, what hasn't? And that's where public health fits in. We rely on their expertise in order to advise and, you know, figure out what to do as a, as a community. It's a fascinating topic. I wish we had more time for it. Uh, John Paul Danko, Counselor for Ward 8. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Probably, I don't know how you couldn't have heard, even if you're not a fan of the band, the drummer for Foo Fighters died the other day, was found dead in his hotel room in Columbia. And this, of course, has led to, uh, understandably, predictably, the band saying, yeah, our, our tour is not going to carry on. Uh, I think we would have been almost more shocked if they had somehow tried to go ahead with a tour, then even the death. I mean, how do you do that? Let me bring in Alan Cross. He is the host of the Ongoing History of New Music. If there's a better music commentator expert out there, I have yet to meet him. Alan, thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're very welcome. This is a, this is a tough one. Um, I, I met Taylor a number of times, and he was just such a, a nice guy. He was always smiling. He... Uh, was always hospitable and friendly and engaged. He was just a, a really good guy. Well, it's his Ham it's his uh, Canadian connection. 
Well, it might be. He uh, was in a band called Sylvia to begin with, and then that led to a job with Sass Jordan when she was trying yep. to break the, you know, the U.S. And then uh, when Alanis Morissette blew up in 1995 with the Jagged Little Pill album, she assembled the band and he was her drummer. And through some backstage meetups with Dave Grohl as they played at the same festivals and concerts, uh, Dave and he got to talking. And uh, eventually, when Dave needed a new drummer, he hired Taylor, and that was 1997. And, I mean, look, there are people in certain bands, I suppose, that are replaceable. And, and, I mean, that sounds glib. I don't mean it like that. I mean, anybody who's played in a band for any period of time with friends and with bandmates, I mean, it's a big loss when they're gone. But we know bands have replaced different people along the way. Is 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 this one of those cases where he is replaceable, or is he so synonymous with Foo Fighters that for them to go ahead and play without him looks weird? That's uh, to be determined yet. But at this moment, I'm thinking, wow, how how do the Foo Fighters continue? Because well, a couple of things. First of all, um, he was a very good drummer, and you can find other very good drummers. But there's the you know the the human connection there. There's the chemistry, the personality, the the way he meshes mesh with the other members of the band. And uh, he was allowed to steal the spotlight from Dave, Dave Grohl, and Dave loved it. And he didn't mind because he had such respect for Taylor and also because they were the best of friends. They went everywhere together. And uh, so this is the second time Dave has had to deal with this kind of heartbreak. I mean, obviously there was Hurt and Nirvana back in 1994, but back then, Kurt was a bandmate. He wasn't his best friend. This is this is different, and probably a lot deeper. Uh, Pat Smear, the guitarist in the Foo Fighters, or one of the guitarists in the Foo Fighters, uh, was also in Nirvana back in 1994 when Kurt died. He was a touring guitarist with them. But then before that, back in December of 1980, he was in a band called The Germs. And their lead singer, a guy by the name of Darby Crash, died of a heroin overdose the day before John Lennon was shot. So one of the things about the Foo Fighters is that they have been, they've tried very, very hard to avoid any kind of danger or drama. They uh, were a very good band, or are a very good band, but they're very short on the drama and the danger, and that's by design, because nobody wants to go through that sort of trauma again. So now here's this situation with Taylor, what do you do? And the answer is, I don't know yet. Obviously, they've canceled their dates. Who do you find to replace them if you do go that route? Maybe the guy you get to replace them is the drummer that's already in the band. And I think he knows some of the songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Dave Grohl knows his way around a drum kit. I mean, it, it, I was thinking about this today. I mean, even, even if Dave Grohl had died or anyone else, I mean, I, I really don't know. After we saw Axl Rose fill in as lead singer for ACDC, I'm not entirely sure there are all that many people in the world of rock and roll who are truly, absolutely, thoroughly irreplaceable. It may not look right. It may sound goofy. But, you know, maybe Mick Jagger not being with the Stones, you couldn't really carry on with the Stones. Um, but yeah, there's not but that with, many, are there? Yeah, but with the Rolling Stones, Charlie Watts died. And, and he had been a founding member of the band from 1962. And he dies, and within weeks, they've got somebody filling in for him. And they're back on the road playing. So what is it with the drummers? 
What is it with the drummers? Him and Neil Peart and now Taylor, and it's like, okay, if you're a drummer, uh, look after yourself. Well, see, here's the, the thing. We don't know what killed him. Um, we, we hear that his heart was twice the size of that of a... He was twice the size of a, a man his size and weight. And uh, you don't get that kind of big heart overnight. That is not a line of cocaine that makes your, your heart swell up like that. So um, I've been doing some... <laughs> Some googling about this sort of thing, and it has, uh, you know, an enlarged heart can be as a result of a, a thyroid condition. It can be as a result of high blood pressure. It can be, it can be a congenital thing. There could be lots of causes of it. It's, it's not a disease in itself, but it's a symptom. And you know, I play drums myself, and I know that as a, dr- a drummer's probably burn two or three more times more calories during a gig than anybody else because of the physical nature of, of, of playing the drums. And he wasn't a big guy. Um, he was the typical skinny rock star sort of dude with, uh, you know, the concave stomach. Um, huh. He was also quite an athlete. I mean, he uh, he was into mountain biking. He was into skateboarding. He was into surfing. So you got to think, okay, what, what what was the cause here? The thing that set off the alarm bells to begin with was him having chest pain. So who knows what the situation is? And... Uh, I'm sure we'll find out as we get more autopsy results. It's uh, it is it is it is sad. It's unfortunate. A lot of fans of the Foo Fighters, and I mean, it's sad anytime something like this happens. I mean, it's uh, it seems that 2022, uh, like a few years ago, the year that Bowie died and Prince died and all of them. I can't remember what year that was. 2022 is shaping up up to once again be one of these years when we have a long list of um, of artists and musicians and actors that are uh, that are going. We're, we're well on our way, but uh, this is a sad one. Uh, Alan Cross, always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. You're very welcome. They did something right today. They changed their overtime rule, and if you are a Buffalo Bills fan, uh, a little late, doesn't help you, but you are probably relieved that um, that's not going to happen again. Let me bring in... A guy everybody around here knows, whether from his time with CHCH or as an author or now as a podcaster, or if you're like me, mostly all those things, but the guy who was the co-host of Sportsline Once Upon a Time, which was the show, the sports show, and you know, still the one that I think everyone should uh, strive to be like. Mark Hebsher. Mark, how are you? Oh, Scott, great to hear your voice again. You know, I'm... um, I got to tell you, before we get into the NFL today, massive day, massive anniversary in the world of sports today. I think it should not go unnoticed or unpassing without being recognized. March 29, 1987, Hulk Hogan body slammed Andre the Giant for the first time ever at WrestleMania. So, you know, that that has to be mentioned. Everyone I know is celebrating that today. Yeah, well, uh, at that time on uh, Sportsline, we didn't run highlights. Or, or even stories on wrestling, right? There was just other things going on in sports. There were a few Not things. Not that I didn't enjoy the odd, you know, Royal Rumble or uh, Steel Cage match. I went to one in West Palm Beach, as a matter of fact, once. But anyway, uh, I, I digress. Now, we didn't, we didn't cover it in those days. But, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's nice that you came up with it. You know, there you go. It is, it is the sports thing. Uh, listen, Mark, <laughs> there are there are Buffalo Bills fans who are still salty about what happened in the playoffs last year when they went to overtime against Kansas City, lost the coin toss, 
and never got to touch the ball in overtime because Kansas Kansas City scored a touchdown on the first possession. And uh, it was and is and has been the dumbest rule in my mind in all of professional sports, all of sports, period, that one team could lose without having a chance to win the game. So thank goodness, in my mind anyway, thank goodness the NFL has at least said, all right, every team will at least touch the ball once, then we can sort out who's going to win. Yeah, that's like the NHL changing their, uh, you know, foot in the crease rule. <laughs> you know, right after Buffalo got shafted by yep. Bell in Dallas. Uh, yeah, uh, God, I just feel really even worse now for Buffalo fans. But, I mean, I don't see how they couldn't have realized this before. You, you, It would be like playing the top of the inning, a team scores a run, and you don't get a chance in the bottom of the inning. I mean, it's really right? ridiculous that each team – it's quite simple to me. Uh, each team gets possession. If, if you have it first and you only get a field goal, the other team can have possession as well and kick a field goal and the game can go on. From then on, it's a free-for-all. But it, you know, as long as you get your one possession. So, yeah. I, I, how, Mark, know, how, do you th- how do you think this was not dealt with before? Because, again, like it seems like it's the easiest rule in the world. and And the idea that... I don't know what the NFL was worried about. Like the idea that somehow if someone scored a touchdown and the other team, now the Bills were going to get the ball, that everybody was going to tune out and go watch some other show. Like it, it makes no sense. I, I've not ever understood why they didn't do this before. But Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, but there have been, there's been overtime in the NFL for since the beginning of football, right? Yep, yep. And how did they solve it in the past? How did they do it? They flipped a coin, you won a toss, you got the ball, beyond center route, kicked the field goal, and you wanted it overtime, right? Which was, so yes. Weren't which they complaining? Was, didn't teams complain in those days saying, hey, we didn't get the ball? Yeah, and so they changed it. No, but I'm saying it had been going, they changed it after 50 60 years, right? Oh, I know. No, I know. I, I But again, I, I don't, you're right, but I don't see what the problem was. Like, I, even though you're right that that rule has existed, I've never understood why the rush to get the game over. If the other team, like l- last year, for example, in this game that probably has been the reason for this, if Josh Allen and the Bills had got the ball, how many fans who are watching are saying, oh, come on, really? We got to watch more of this game? There's not one. People are thrilled. They're probably calling their friends and going, are you watching the Bills and Chiefs? Turn it in. Uh, so I don't. I just I don't understand why they wouldn't have gone this way long before now. Scott, what if you had Buffalo and the over? Let's say you had the over, and now the game's gone into overtime, and the, po- I mean, the points matter, and you're going, wait a minute. I mean, like, Buffalo doesn't get even get the ball to score three points? Never mind, seven. Right? That gives me the – so you add the betting element into it, too, people betting the over. That just adds another layer. I, just, you know, I, I'm, I wonder what motivates the rules committee to change the rules. What, what combination of displeasure of the fans, uh, you know, complaints. Uh, I don't know. Do they take into consideration before they go? Oh, this, you know, this rule's been a bad rule for this many years. Maybe it's time we change it. I would think. I, I mean, some something had fin- something finally stirred them to make this move, and and there were. This is not the first time that this rule has come into play. I mean, Kansas City lost the game to the Patriots this way a few years ago. There have been other games. Now, by the way, this is only in the playoffs. They're changing this rule for so regular season. It's going to be the same thing. 
But, uh, I mean, this rule has existed. Teams have lost in heartbreaking fashion. Um, one of the people on the on the rules committee says that what's really driving this now is we have so many great quarterbacks that it seems unfair because now winning the coin toss, if you've got one of those great quarterbacks, it, the, the likelihood of you scoring on that first possession is very high. So it's not like in the old days, which is, you know, kind of a slap, a slap against every other older quarterback. Uh, you know, thank you, Doug Flutie. Thank you, Roger Staubach, Warren Moon. I mean, Joe Montana, all you guys. Uh, you kind of suck compared to the new guys. But uh, again, I just, I, I, I don't understand why this even was still a thing. It, it, the NFL is so smart with getting people to watch. I just don't understand why it was a thing. Yeah, it's when the games really, really mean something. And of course, now with social media, especially, they really, really mean more, you know, than the time, um, <coughs> excuse me, the, the time that Jan Stenerud kicked a field goal to beat the Miami Dolphins and Garrow, your premium, you know, back in those days, I guess it was, you know, that was the rule. I don't remember if it was on the first possession or not. That's the other thing. Is yeah. I don't know, remember when it happens on the first possession, obviously, like, Oh man, we never got a chance. I don't know. That's the rules. And so it's been so long, but obviously, you know, now that more and more people have weighed in and public opinion means so much more, and on Twitter and social media, people are going, how can this be a rule? And the leagues are saying, how can we attract new fans if we have this dumb rule? And they say, let's just get rid of the rule. Said, okay, let's do it. Just before I let you go, Mark, is there any, you, you mentioned wagering. And look, that, that's a huge part right now of the sports landscape. Is there, a, is there an element in this where the NFL, is there some way that I'm missing where the NFL looks at this and says, we can somehow offer more wagering opportunities through this rule change, or is it just what you just say? Is it just the fans spoke loud enough that they finally heard it? Oh yeah, no, I think there's probably someone who went, wait a minute, we can take advantage of this. This is, this is good because now we can incorporate the fact that if, if both teams have to score, right. Or, or if both teams have to have at least one possession, then the chance of more points being scored goes up by, whatever, 2.3 points per game, which means lines have to be adjusted, which means there's one more talking point for gamblers, for gambling, sorry, not gamblers, but for gambling, for making it more attractive to watch the game. If you don't have any mm. skin in the game, get some skin in the game because you <laughs> know what? The over has worked the last five games and overtime in the playoffs. I don't know. You, you almost sound like you could do a commercial for one of those companies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am. I'm doing. I am. I'm doing some stuff with Bowdog, and it's like, I'm thinking, what's the line? Like in other words, uh, Vladdy Guerrero, when I got him, was like four and a half to one, four fifty to one to win the American League MVP. I thought, man, he was second last year. That's pretty good odds, right? Like, who would you pick? And I thought, you know, I'm going to put some money on that because I believe Vladdy Guerrero is going to win the American League MVP, and I like the odds. No different than, and no offense to Vladdy, no different than liking a horse in a big in a long race and saying, I'll, I'll bet on that horse to win that race i like the team the blue jays to win at 11 to 1 even though they're in the toughest division in baseball man they're stacked yep yep no it's it, I, there's got to there's got to be other things besides just the nfl hearing the fans on this rule yeah. but may, maybe that's it maybe there's some tv or wagering or something uh listen mark hebsher always love having you on thanks for taking a few minutes today thank you scott Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.